I'm Mark Sinker, this is Freak Triggering the Lollards of Pop. New series, new day, new time, same foolish plan. Much longer intro there because um, some fine musicians had to leave the studio before us. Um, and that may set the pace for the rest of the series, let's see. Uh, it's 7pm, or actually it isn't 7pm anymore, it's uh, 7 something pm on Wednesday 14th of November. This is Resonance FM 104.4. When last we were here, we weren't even here. A lot has happened since then. We'll catch up in a moment. Tonight we'll be discussing old school hair, whatever happened to hats, and the pseudoscience of selling you stuff with pseudoscience. We'll hear music from Two Unlimited, Britney obviously, and you'll find out the rest. We'll reveal the midweek number one. In our last series, we talked of many things. Semicolons, centaurs, reggae reggae sauce, Agatha Christie, Nick Kershaw, Caruso's hot sausage, the ethics of magic, the poetry of food, the failure of the new mathematics. We were never afraid to confront the issues of the day. Looking back, we skated past a lot of stuff, a bit slickly. We should have told you more about Russell T. Davis's forthcoming remake of Last of the Summer Wine, formal homage to the factory record story. We made links between animals in children's literature and lost pagan pantheons. We failed to mention Richard Scarry's lifelong friendship with Alistair Crowley. All of us have used pseudonyms on the internet. It was put to us by one who knows us only too well that none of us said why. We talked of man-made languages constructed entirely of musical tones, but we refused to speak in those languages. We were the first to realise the creative overlap between astrology, character class and role-playing games, but none of us scampered off to write the cash-in airport novel. Which proves, as nothing else can, we are armchair pundits of the very worst stripe just like everyone at home. Today's Lollards are Kat Stevens, Hello. Mag Magnus Anderson, Hello. and Katie Grocott. Hello. So, Katie, what's your most cryptic pseudonym? And what do you remember the last series for best? Oh, I only really have one uh, online pseudonym that I can ever remember using. Um, but that's my name on live journal and I'm not prepared to give it out <laughs> on the radio. See, that's um, the thing. We can't, we, we all have these secret lives. We just can't give them away. Well, the reason I chose this pseudonym was because uh, it was the punchline to my favourite joke when I was a kid. But someone had already taken the punchline. It was to do with an animal. Um, so I just changed the animal. So it doesn't really make any sense whatsoever. There's a there's a reason behind it, but it's a fairly rubbish pseudonym. And I, I slightly suspect that Magnus and Cat have been rather weak on the pseudonym. <laughs> yes, my <laughs> internet pseudonym that most people know me by is actually my name. <laughs> Although, it, to be fair, it's quite a comedy name. Um, I, I do work for the music business, and the amount of times my boss has called me Yusuf is too numerous dimensions. Too hilarious dimensions. <laughs> to the point. <coughs> well, at close of last play, close of play last series, we were confronted with a dilemma: the criminal mastermind behind the Resonance Master Plan, the endlessly orbiting Dr. Blood Cornflake, post-apocalyptic satellite DJ tasked with saving the globe from barbarism, gave us a second series, provided we stopped abusing the Kabbalistic scholar Gershom Sholem's motto: "Nonsense, when all is said and done, is still nonsense." We would glibly announce. But the study of nonsense is no longer considered science. Nevertheless, we remain the interwebs' one sane collective, doing more, doing once more, 
what we do best, lolling in the high church of low culture. Here's Brittany. <laughs>
us through this. Um, that was Britney Spears' Get Naked, I Got a Plan. Although I've started referring to it as Get Naked, I Has a Plan. And this is due to various internet memes which I should really know better than to take heed of. Uh, but I think this is the best track on her new album, Blackout. And uh, it's got all the ingredients that you want for a pop song. It's got some weird croaky guy going, and I kind of feel a bit like that myself at the moment because I'm (laughs) suffering from a a slight virus. Oh, poor cat. Uh, So thank thank you, Magnus. And um, I I know how the guy's feeling. He's he's been struck down with the plague because of Britney's awesomeness. And she's there dancing away, strutting her stuff, and he just can't do it because he's there sipping the Beecham's Flu Plus. So... uh, uh, good on you, Brittany. I think she's pulled in a magnificent album out of her hat when she's got um, you know, under particular pressure from the media and from her fans. And uh, yeah, she's really like come up with the goods. Uh, any dissenters on this? Wait, this is resonance, after all. We should in fact <laughs> disapprove. I, I haven't heard it yet. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> You're not keeping <laughs> up with the, the very feeble pop currentness. <laughs> no, I'm not. Sorry. Oh, well, I'm certainly not going to dissent. I liked all of Britney's albums, and I think this is no exception. So, sorry for the lack of argument. Well, um, uh, <coughs> let's hurrying swiftly on. <laughs> the lack of... Uh... When Adam delved and Eve span, who then was the beardy man? Kat, you've dug up some facts and fiction about agriculture of the face. I have. I'm an enormous fan of Victorian literature. It's very rare that I read anything written after 1900. I'm not really sure why. Maybe I am uh, get in touch with uh, comedies and manners or uh, I think it's actually because I really like big sideboards, lovely strokeable patches of hair on the side of a man's face. I really go for that. And there's, th- <laughs> there's plenty of them about in Victorian literature. So I've gone and done a little bit of research to see exactly how much, where and why there is facial hair in Victorian literature and um, what I did for this this little bit of science is I went to Project Gutenberg which is an online resource for all uh, books that are out of copyright and you can just download them for free and uh, peruse them at your leisure or use a control F on one's internet browser and do a find and search for all occurrences of the words whiskers Beard, moustache, and just for a control letter, uh, wigs as well. Because I've got a theory. (laughs) (laughs) Ask me what my theory is, Casey. What's your theory, Kat? Basically, my theory is that um, at the turn of uh, the... Uh, 18th century. Uh, obviously, you had the French Revolution going on. There was lots of ostentation. People were wearing enormous hair pieces, powdered wigs. Powdered wigs. Uh, these uh, wigs had they had small birds living in them. There was nests going on there. So you're telling me they look like Amy Winehouse? Yes, basically. Okay. It was uh, they were the French Revolution equivalent of Camden, and uh, <laughs> and the ostentation <laughs> therein, and. Uh, of course, when the French Revolution happened, then all this sort of uh, gaudiness and over, you know, very high headpieces, they all got very unfashionable. So uh, people had to make do with their own hair. And in sort of like the days of I don't know, plague and lice, and it wasn't really, there was no hair straighteners there for a start. So they had to make do with a much more controllable aspect 
which was the hair on their face. So you've got all these sort of magnificent moustaches with tweezed wax bits on the end. You had big old sideburns that looked like India if you put your face on the side. <laughs> and uh, oh, but, uh, Just a minute, Kat. If, uh, <laughs> if people were trying to sort out the problem of lice, surely growing more hair and in a more sensitive place wasn't a good idea. But at least you can see it if it's on your hair. You can actually see whether there's any lice there. Whereas if it's all that piled up on top of your head, then how are you going to know it's up there? Well, that's true. But I think maybe there might have been beards so bushy. But you but could fit lice inside. Well, uh, Santa Claus seems to have managed. To, uh, yeah, I've got an answer <laughs> for everything today. Anyway, um, moving on. Uh, it seems that from my research that uh, in sort of like the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, sort of like the very early Victorian age, there was a, a massive freedom for hairstyles and um, one that we hadn't, didn't really see again until like the, the 70s. Um, obviously, there was a, a time of peace in, in England, at least, and uh, so there wasn't much call on soldiers going off to war. And even if they did, they were just standing there, sort of in a tent somewhere, sipping champagne, and they didn't actually have to go into action and things. So they could afford to have these wonderful hairstyles. But obviously, with the First World War, Second World War, everyone had to go off and stand in a trench. So having sort of big ostentatious hairstyles wasn't really a goer there. It could have been life-threatening. It could have been. And um, until like the 70s, again, when we got a time of relative peace going there, so there was no, you know, less conscription and things like that. So uh, people grew their hair long, and of course in the 80s, you've got the whole Duran Duran business going on there. <laughs> we're, not, we're not even going to start on that. <laughs> and um, and now people can just like go walking down the street dressed, you know, with their hair like a bird's nest, and no one bats an eyelid. So we've got an enormous freedom now, which they had in the Victorian age. And I wanted to see how this was reflected in literature. So I picked uh, 18 books from, um, well, 16 from uh, the, uh, the 19th century and two control books from before. 1800 to you know to test for wig occurrence and i was right there was there was high wig ratios in the the pre-1800 books okay and afterwards there was very little wig action so the literature as we expect <laughs> reflected the uh, you know the style of the time which is great but it does vary from book to book on the actual facial hair aspect and Listeners, I've drawn a graph. <laughs> Show us your graph. Well, oh, you can see here. Amazing. Um, for the benefit of my listeners, I'm going to describe it. There's kind of two uh, like rounded segments <laughs> before and after a main surge going up the middle. I'm very dubious about this graph. <laughs> this graph. I believe the graph was drawn before the data was plotted. I believe you've you've. Yeah. I, no, I, I'm going to explain it in detail. Okay, we start off here, 1720, that's Mole Flanders by Daniel mm-hmm. Defoe. And um, that's got, this is uh, the total occurrence of hair. Uh, so uh, this has only got four mentions of wigs here in, in 1720, so that's all right. Um, and then it sort of like goes gradually up to uh, Henry Fielding's uh, The Story of Tom Jones. And there's, you know, there's a good reason we're showing there of uh, 10 mentions of either whiskers, hair, you know, moustaches, beard, that sort of thing. And then it sort of like dips right down into Jane Austen, where no well, mention. She wouldn't, she wouldn't have mentioned hair. She doesn't mention hair at all. Oh, I'm not surprised. Not one <laughs> single in any of her books. Yeah, she was very ashamed of her moustache. Well, <laughs> that must be it, because she doesn't make reference to any of it. Perhaps she just didn't like, like, a uh, bearded men 
Well, did she like men at all? I'm not really up on uh, her um, lifetime. There were rumours oh, okay. that she did. Oh, that's good. But nothing conclusive. I don't know. I'm don't re- not really trusting sort of like 21st century cinema on this. And <laughs> <laughs> quite right. But um, uh, back to the graph, though. Um, after our dip down to zero for Jane Austen, we go right back up. There's a, a very uh, long, thin, almost almost masculine it's a, it's length. A, it's a monolith. A monolith in the middle, right up here to uh, William Makepeace Thackeray's Vanity Fair, where there's a massive 40 mentions of oh, the whiskers mass- and beards and things. Towering, isn't it? And so, um, yeah, <laughs> also around the same period, we've got like, uh, Charles Dickens as well. He wrote a lot of his books around then. This is around about uh, 1850 or so. And uh, got Nicholas Nickleby, Oliver Twist, they're all there as well. Although I do have to say that in, in Oliver Twist, there was uh, uh, one mention of whiskers that was actually a cat. So we, <laughs> <laughs> we, can't, we can't count that one, I'm afraid. But yeah, and uh, after we, our massive peak up here, uh, there's another sort of small mound on the other side, making a symmetrical sort of, there's a kind of uh, many a uh, thing. There's an arrangement, isn't there? There is. I, I would say this is a very a very uh, masculine picture that we're looking at here. And, uh, <laughs> well, well uh, one might associate masculinity with high growth of facial hair. I, I think it's a real shame that the graph can't be broadcast over the radio. <laughs> Uh, although I think that the job that you've done is fantastic. But I've, I've got a question for you. Which yes, Magnus. Is, when these occurrences, when the mentions get made in the books as of the facial hair, do they do they happen right at the beginning in the description of all of the characters, or do they actually see some action throughout the length of the book? Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. It really depends on the author. I mean, uh, uh, there's a very vary. It varies definitely uh, in the the light in which these whiskers are, are placed. I mean, it can be very positive, like uh, the the Brontes. For example, they think of uh, whiskers as wild and manly and sort of like Heathcliff on a moor, that sort of thing. Very sort of rugged and attractive. Whereas uh, the, uh, Dickens and uh, George Eliot, they seem to think associate whiskers with like grumpy old men hobbling along. Going. I think, sorry, sorry. Yeah. I think with Vanity Fair, the, the, the peak, as it were, of the... Um, of the phallus, <laughs> because I'm just going to say it. It looks like a phallus. <laughs> Um, uh, what are you implying? I, I, well, I, I, I seem to remember that most um, references to facial hair are made in reference to Joss Sedley, the, the huge fop, basically. He is. Who he is a bumbling, foppish buffoon who's basically obsessed with drinking and looking after his facial hair. So that's kind of a, a lampooning device. Yeah, yes, going he, on he, there, he, so. Joss Sedley is a character who uh, goes to the Battle of Waterloo but just, uh, runs away at the last minute and he actually shaves off his moustache. Yes at Waterloo to escape capture so by the French. So he won't be mistaken for an officer. Yeah. So yes, moustaches are heroic. Indeed, and brave and manly. Mm. Whereas... Uh, um, yeah. I'm going to have to step in here because <laughs> Kat's done far more research than we have time for in this one programme <laughs> and we'll have to, clearly, we'll have to be pursuing this Can in Can I just say problems. one last comment though? Uh, the one mention Jane Austen does make of uh, hair in general is in Emma uh, and he says, Frank Churchill has no reason to wish his hair longer to avoid any confusion of face. <laughs> Which I think is lovely. Well, as part of the segue, I'll just mention that there's a um, a nice uh, nice article, uh, oddly enough, in Vanity Fair, um, linked on Freaky Trigger, which is the website which uh, which is the parent of this programme, which is about the uh, history of the Hitler moustache. And it's a really it's a really interesting story. It's well worth actually tracking that down. And it, 
it's nice that it's published in Vanity Fair. Um, there's a famous tune by Eric Dolphy called Hat and Beard. As this is the Lollards of Pop, we won't actually be playing for you tonight or in probably till the next series. But in the meantime, Magnus can tell us what happened to the other half of this legendary comedy duo, Hats, Magnus. Uh, yeah, well, actually, originally I was planning to talk about something completely different. At the planning meeting, I suggested I talk about a writer-craftsman who I thought had an interesting history. And people were sort of nodding around the table and looking like they were kind of accepting that it was quite worthy, but it wasn't really setting the place alight. And then Kat said that earlier, while we were in the pub, I'd been talking about hats, so why didn't I talk about that? And there was a kind of pregnant pause, and I said, yeah, right, I'll talk about that. And there was a cheer at the table. <laughs> so that's, that's why I'm talking about hats. And uh, so the thing I'd like to say is that whereas it, it would have been probably quite possible to come up with a potted idea of a person's life and influence, even if it had been quite wrong, it's been much harder to come up with a unified theory of hats. But I've got something, uh, which has started, obviously, with, as this is large, a pop with Wikipedia. And Wikipedia said that hats... And this is their definition of it. So whoever was winning the edit war on <laughs> Wikipedia that day said, hats are differentiated from caps for being more elaborate. Hats have a high crown, a brim, or both. And then they go on to say, a hat may be placed on the head. Nay. <laughs> 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 so uh, I think that's, you know, that's an adequate definition of the hat, but not broad enough for me. So my definition of the hat, the one I'm going to work with, is that a hat is something which can sensibly be doffed. Ah. So if you can doff it, I'm going to call it a hat. Okay, and the other thing is I think hats are basically fun. I, 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 the reason I'm attracted to the notion of hats is I think if you're wearing one, then you've got a focal point around the head, and it's an interesting thing to look at. Uh, so anyway, the, one of the things that I, I've come to a conclusion about with hats is that as a general rule, they're, uh, they're sort of acceptable things to, to wear, um, but for, for some... Slight minutiae at the border. But if they're for practical use, then they fit closely to the head, then that's fine. Okay? If they don't fit closely to the head, but they're there for an aesthetic purpose, if they're there for fashion, essentially, then that, that's also fine. You can get away with pretty much anything. But if you get it wrong, if you've got a hat which is there for practical reasons, to keep you warm or safe or something, and it's far away from the head, then you're a subject of ridicule. So I'd say, for instance, uh, a policeman's helmet, which we hold in much affection, but especially in their earlier incarnations, quite often be quite tall, uh, have also drawn a lot of fun. And uh, similarly, a diver's helmet is probably going to appear quite ridiculous because it just completely changes your comportment. You're likely to, to lose your gait while you're wearing one. Although, you might argue it's not a hat. Because you can't doff it. You can't <laughs> doff it, exactly. Well, you can doff it when you're not at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps it's... Perhaps you would need several people to help you doff. <laughs> it's doffable in a sense. Yeah, okay, a team doff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, anyway, so I had a look into, um, in, into hats because the, the sort of like the general idea of it is that we don't see people wearing hats at the moment. But there is this uh, notion that at some point in history you did. that, uh, and, and in particular, there seems to be this fulcrum point of around the 1960s where prior to that, most people were wearing hats. And it would just be a matter of course to wear a hat. And you're kind of making a statement almost if you didn't. Whereas after the 1960s, you're kind of making a statement if you do. 
And uh, to be honest, that was actually supported. That date was supported by most of the histories that I read, although they weren't particularly informative. They'd say things like, hat-wearing grew from the 18th century onwards, and then with equal authority, they'd say, but after 1960, it waned. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I needed it, more to... <laughs> it, this ties in with what Kat was saying, doesn't yes, it? Because obviously, absolutely. if you have loads of hair, then your hat will... It will doff itself. Well, you see, I, I have a, I have a kind of alternative theory to cats uh-huh. what about is the, the facial hair and about hats, which is that far from being about freedom, it was actually about control, because I kind of hate the Victorians because I thought they were. They don't like you. No, <laughs> that's why I hate them. No, I, they had kind of outwardly they were the. Everyone thinks of them as the most repressed control freaks and etiquette. Um, morals you know you know victorian values but it kind of concealed this horrid seething underbelly of child prostitution and disease um and i think that (laughs) underbelly in a bad way (laughs) it was just the elaborate kind of you know disguise and etiquette and hat wearing keeping it all perfectly um ordered in order to conceal the hypocrisy that went on underneath but that's that's a bit of a rant sorry about that but does it even have to be a hypocrisy could it have been that uh people just so needed to uh create some order or to differentiate themselves from I, the stuff that was going I on? think they knew it was there and they <laughs> were just disguising it well didn't they have to like uh, wear those big tall hats to like make the steam engines go with the smoke coming out of the top and everything <laughs> you know they, 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 they had the powered lid, by hats. You know they had the, those hats that the lid flips up and smoke comes out. <laughs> actual hats. Oh no, hang on, that's magicians. <laughs> well, I'm I'm old enough to actually remember the last man in London to regularly wear a bowler hat. And when my dad was a young man and coming travelling down to London, most of the people, especially in the city, it was just part of the uniform. And to be honest, I don't know what the magic date of the transformation ah, was. Ah, I've actually looked into this. I, um... As someone connected to the city, <laughs> I believe, in some <laughs> mysterious way. Well, I contacted a couple of bowler, sh- bowler hat shops oh, good. Uh, to, to ask them this. <laughs> Actual sign. <laughs> it's not allowed anymore. And, uh, just before I get on with this, I want to, to cap off the 1960s thing, which is that Lollard Associate Alan Terwarther sent me a quote of uh, of Stephen Pinker's book, which um, uh, admonished anyone who expressed the 1960s theory and said that was at best a tipping point at which hats disappeared, but they'd been on their way out throughout most of the early part of the, the 20th century, especially from then. Anyway, um, the bowler hat shop, uh, the bowler hat maker, I asked him what the demand was, and he, he seemed reluctant to say, so I said dozens a week, and he went, mm, yes, okay. And... Uh, they, there's apparently a formal requirement for them in certain quarters, so that props up demand. Uh, and I said, um, uh, will there still be even one voluntary wearer of a bowler hat uh, that he wears formally for, for work, you know, for commuting? And uh, he said, absolutely directly, there will be. And he, to the extent where I think he actually knew someone who, who he supplies the hats to. And there was another terrific thing, which um, I got from a different different shop. This shop has a website called Toffs Are Us. <laughs> so you feel that they're, they're not entirely 100% behind the class system. Is, it? is the R backwards? <laughs> not on their website. I'm sure, sure it is on their, their site. Um, and uh, they've got a quote. This is an absolute straight quote on their website. And it says, top hats and bowler hats are rigid. So as a rule... They have to be steamed to make you the head shape 
uh, to fit the head shape of the customer precisely. This unique experience lasts about 10 minutes. So they steam your head for 10 minutes. <laughs> and then Why don't they steam the hat, <laughs> not your head? Why well, don't they shape the hat to your head, not you your head to the hat? Or you get a facial while you're getting your hat fit. And then they, then the next say, statement is, it, it says this will have a result, and the result they say is, this will take you back two centuries. Two centuries. So they've got a time-travelling hat-shaping machine. That's amazing. Magnus, who on earth was that? <laughs> and tell us why you think so much of it. 
Uh, I do think a lot of it. I think it's um, a very unusual synthesis of some uh, musical styles from completely different places, which found something which did unify them. And uh, that was, of course, a medley of the uh, the Who's Pinball Wizard. It was probably the the three tracks which have the most tune to them on on their album. Which um, is the the Who did a lot of concept albums, which were stories throughout the length of them. And so they were a bit like musicals. And that cover was done by uh, the New Seekers, who are probably best known for their song, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing, which was, of course, used by Coke in, in their, um, I'm allowed to name Brown, uh, in, uh, in their commercials and was, was a very, very big hit. Um, now, the New Seekers survived for a long time after that, but they're, they're kind of, their, their act was appearing on variety shows in the 70s and, you know, they'd, they'd be chorusing things up on, on telly and so on. And um, uh, I, so when I heard this track, I kind of knew that there was, um, it was a very upbeat version of, uh, of Pinball Wizard. Um, and I realized it's actually added, kind of by accident, a, a vigor to, uh, to that music, which um, I just really like. I think that from the, these independent places, which probably I wouldn't have listened to either Tommy or, um, or something by, by the New Seekers independently, have, have come together and, and produced this really fantastically uplifting piece of music, or at least I, I think so. Do you like playing pinball, Magnus? <laughs> uh, d- mm, yeah, okay. No, I, like I, I do. I, I used to have a game called uh, Medieval Madness in our common room at school. So, uh, but we used to there was a barnyard multi ball. If you got it, all the lights to light, light up. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and you sure played a mean pinball. I did. You got a free go if you got past mm-hmm. twenty million. Yeah, I'm a big aficionado of certain pinball games. There's there's one where you had to build a robot, and uh, as you gave it various faculties, it would announce it, and it would say things like, I can see. Oh. (laughs) And I can feel. So it's the opposite of of, um, (laughs) of the theme of Tommy. (laughs) (laughs) To critique. Maybe that's where they got the the idea from. (laughs) I'm strangely moved by that. Well, you're quite strange, well, just generally, sure. Katie. Thanks, Mark. Um, uh, well, we have to go over to the teen forecast now, so, um, Eli? Now the teenage forecast, issued by the Youth Office on behalf of concerned parents everywhere at 18.05 today. Girl warnings. High peer pressure in all areas, especially St Trinian's, Trebizon, Chalet School, Mallory Towers. Warm front expanding following vigorous lacrosse match. The general situation at break time. Changeable, argumentative, insecure. Removing glasses later, revealing inner beauty. And now the area forecasts for the next 24 hours. Emo, goth, low or very low, gloomy outlook. Initially non-conformist, conforming later. Poetry breaking out overnight. Buffy, Carrie, Bill and Ted, rising from grave, some misappropriation of religious iconography expected. Lohan, Silverstone, Witherspoon, Preppy, highly fashionable, becoming prom queen. Arnold, Kevin, nostalgic, 70s following 60s, stormy relationship with Winnie, moderate. Daria, Wednesday, Darlene, Enid. Cold front approaching. Frequent showers of sarcasm. Brain. Athlete. Basket case. Princess. Criminal. Met once. Lives changed forever. Travolta. 
Newton-John, 30s, fooling no one, detention. Culkin, Spears, Barrymore, Feldman, precocious becoming poor, veering off rails, messy divorces imminent. Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. That concludes the teenage forecast for the 14th of November, 2007. Join me for a ride, speed up the music. Join me for a ride, maximum overdrive. Join me for a ride, speed up the music. Join me for a ride, maximum overdrive.
Uh, that's uh, Twilight Zone by Two Unlimited. Um, like everything fantastic, it's Dutch. Katie, um, tell us why you picked that. Um, well, like uh, so many other decisions made um, about what will appear on this program, this was decided in the pub with Kat. Hooray! Um, we, were talk- we were talking about facial hair and just hair generally. And um, we were we were going to discuss, uh, but we didn't get time, so I might just chuck the question out now. Who, um, if anyone, is your modern hair icon? I mean, obviously, you only like crusty old Victorian dudes. Well, anyone who kind of emulates that look with a kind of the sideboard action going on there. So Although I can't really think of anyone. Freaky trigger associate Richard Tunnicliffe? <laughs> well, possibly. Possibly. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> there is a, no... Oh, oh, there's a mocha. Yeah, there's no correlation between uh, us uh, moving to the same area and his sideboard length increasing. Yeah. Anyone else have a... Well, I, I've always been um, very fond of those um, children who, well, I mean adults as well, who have like all over facial hair. Oh, I just think they, because yeah. basically they look like puppies. Yeah. <laughs> and Aww. so, you know, cute. Actually, I'm quite intrigued by this uh, uh, diagram that I've uh, just been handed of uh, various facial hair types. There's this dapper-looking gent here sporting 16 different types of beard, including uh, th- the Van Dyke, the, the friendly mutton chops. <laughs> <laughs> Suits me. Um, the Franz Joseph, which uh, you can kind of imagine what that might look like. And uh, the ho- the he, which kind of looks a bit like a King Charles Spaniel. What's your favourite of this list, Katie? I like the French fork. <laughs> it looks like a tooth on a toothpaste advert with the roots all um, hanging out. But why did you pick Twilight Zone, oh, Katie? Yes, yeah, so well, I picked Twilight Zone because my own personal modern hair icon uh, is in fact little Greg Sanders from CSI, who um, every, every week when I watch CSI, I have a Greg's hair watch. Um, and uh, basically, his hair's always bloody awful. From the kind of undercut to the the big spiky to the highlight zone, uh-huh. which um, I believe appears around season four or five, but which made me quite literally boggle in horror. Um, and yet, I can't tear my eyes away. So yes, that that was for that was for little Greg from CSI, a, a program about real science. When we were talking about um, maths earlier, we said that. Hat and beard was a duo, but in fact, in most people's hearts, it's it's a threesome, isn't it? Hat, beard, and conditioner. And where where <laughs> does where does conditioner? There's a gorgeous lab girl from the Ponsard Institute for Advanced Biochemical Do's. So, Katie, this situation that I believe doesn't entirely please you. No, it doesn't. Um, this is kind of born of my lifelong habit of getting really annoyed with adverts and shouting at them. Um, and recently, um, well, we'll get on to more hair-related things, but what kind of really kicked this off was a, an advert for a certain um, crisp company advertised, as Kat said, uh, by a big-eared footballer. Um, and they are very laudably um, kind of kicking off a new health drive to make their crisps healthier by not frying them in whatever they fried them in before. And they've, they've switched to this sunseed oil, naturally lower in saturates, which, uh, which is good. So my first thought upon seeing this advert was, well, what the blithering flip is sunseed oil? I mean, okay, you know, I, I, I cook a lot, you know, 
I'm I'm aware of most of the oils you can you can use for cooking, and sunseed oil uh, somehow not um registered on my radar ever. I mean, kind of at a push, you could say it was a may, maybe a familiar name for sun sunflower seed oil, as as we all know a very common um frying ingredient. But so I thought, well, I'll do I'll do a little bit of research. <laughs> I didn't phone up. I didn't phone. I didn't phone up any any farms or anything sorry <laughs> but so i did type it into google looked up sunseed oil couldn't find anything this was a few months ago when i initially got cross um now it seems there's a lot more information because i should imagine that said chris manufacturer has had several inquiries about its so-called sunseed oil now we find out uh, from their website that sunseed oil is in fact um, a type of sunflower oil um which is naturally higher in the good parts of fat, um, allegedly, than the normal sunflower seed. They, they've got all graphs and things on their website. But it just kind of begged the question, well, not begged the question for me, but I just thought, well, why not just say sunflower seed oil? They, they've registered this sunseed as a trademark, and it all seems very, well, slightly dishonest to me. And they, they're kind of pushing this sunseed oil as um, they actually say on the website, uh, um, how is this miracle possible? The miracle of making crisps higher in healthy fats. Um, so I'm doubly cross with them for for throwing out this this scientific-sounding term, naturally low in saturates, but at the same time claiming it's a miracle. I, I don't feel any any consumer can win here. I th I think I, I think I can imagine what what the the decision uh, entailed, which is that sunflower seed oil is a real mouthful to say and so and also they wanted to say it's something special whereas sunflower seed oil is not particularly special to, to patent its recipe or something so oh, but th this is it i mean so it's not to do with science it's to do with sayability and it's to do with the fact it looks nice on the, and and there's something um you know sunseed well, oil it sounds it's a nice sounding word yeah it sounds like little baby suns reproducing and that's <laughs> the, the oil is kind of the horrid byproduct of that Ooh, actually thanks thanks cat i think you, you put us all in a great place there <laughs> i'm more concerned about i mean it, it's sunseed naturally lower in saturates it's kind of pushing this sunseed oil as a naturally healthier thing um uh, then something it doesn't actually name. Yeah, it turns out that sunseed oil is in fact um, just it is a type of sunflower seed oil um, that you know is actually quite expensive. So I don't know how they've kept the price down, but um, but anyway, this this is this, this was what first got me riled. I'm I'm thinking that you know not explaining really what sunseed is and just making it sound like a new miracle ingredient really just saying what it does not saying what it is not really you know having some some graphs but not really going into it much do you think they're borrowing the aesthetics of science but not really giving it the kind of rigor which you would expect oh, i think that may be the case magnus <laughs> <laughs> um it's it's i mean I, I know i know they've got marketing to think of but i do i do find it annoying when you get kind of these these miracle and they did use the word miracle on the website which really just puts my back up something chronic I, I i think that that if you're borrowing the aesthetics of science you're kind of throwing them straight back away again once you start using the word miracle 
<laughs> well, exactly. Well, this this is why they've annoyed me because they're trying to have it both ways. They're the, um, the magic of science. Yeah. They're, they're, how is this miracle possible? Well, you tell us. Well, there you clearly need a, at least a uh, hundred beautiful girls in lab coats and glasses for every mention of the world miracle. Well, I think. exactly. And you see, I'm I'm quite pro the the lab girls, but they don't really appear on crisp ads very much. No. They appear they appear in adverts for things which have which are excellent because they have no earthly use. <laughs> <laughs> so well, so they're kind of they're kind of like um, interludes well, yeah. during the adverts, and there's this strange stuff which. This goo. And and this, ob- obviously there's this kind of fascinating like tension of sexiness with all these women in white coats who are, you know, they're not the same as the the strange wafty people who will be produced by by this material. They're they're much more sort of stern and and rigorous and and actually know lots about chemistry. And I have to say, Mark, <laughs> that this is veering into territories that I've not researched. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got it's nice I've, I've not seen the, these attractive women in lab coats. I, I tend to, in the adverts I watch, the extent I pay attention to them, they'll, they'll show a shampoo commercial and the science consists of a three-second computer-generated advert of some little kind of beans being absorbed into Zooming hair. Zooming into a hair shark. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. the science bit. Well, that, is, that is the science <laughs> bit. But it, it, that's because none of you have done the research. I, I've actually been on several tours of the Ponds Institute, <laughs> <laughs> taking phone numbers. Well, this, is, this, this was leading me to my next kind of slightly annoyed at science claims and adverts, but they appear to have got their comeuppance somehow, which is um, recently um, a certain um, top-selling makeup brand, shall we say, was um, was kind of tapped on the shoulder by the regulators because in in their mascara adverts it turned out that the model had actually used false eyelashes i mean her her own eyelashes obviously but with with extra kind of fakey bits on um and ever since then i found it extremely interesting that not only makeup adverts but shampoo adverts have been falling over themselves to put very small disclaimers (laughs) <laughs> at, at the bottom of their, uh, they they really do. Um, to the point d- of eligibility. Well, yeah, well, my, I do have a very small TV, so I wouldn't like to to kind of say, um, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> really quite small, and um, so much so that you, you kind of can't you can't read all of them. Well, there was an advert which I saw on TV yesterday, which was for a brand of yogurt which uh, helps Ooh. you bacteriorally. And their, their disclaimer just said, go and look at our website. We're not going to tell you here. Go onto the website. And there, they had three categories of research for three different types of people. And in each of these people, their defences were improved. And the categories were people who are prone to sport and physical exertion. Prone. Uh, right. <laughs> people who are active, active people. Okay, so they've got sporty, active, which I imagine is less, less sporty. And then the third category, the ones who are neither sporty nor active, are middle-aged people. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There are only three types of people in this world. Well, surely this is it. I'm guessing this might be the same yogurt brand that advertises uh, specifically towards women. And uh, they say sometimes that you, they may experience uh, a certain bloated feeling. That bloated that feeling. That bloated feeling. Like they, they know... The, the audience knows what the yoghurt maker is talking about, uh, possibly because they're clutching their stomach in agony every month. But, uh, you know, they were assumed that, well, uh, 
I, I assume that are the men watching that they they're kind of flummoxed they're saying well well why are they having are suffering digestive discomfort when, when we're not i don't know <laughs> and me with my diet of yogurt yeah <laughs> <laughs> um we're coming towards the end of the program at, at this point um we uh we're able to reveal to you the uh um oh i can't remember what it's called <laughs> the, the midweek number one that's right um no, I know what it's called. I couldn't remember <laughs> what it was. <laughs> uh, it's the midweek number one. Um, and uh, let's hear some of it. And uh, I'll tell you what it is later, which you will know anyway, because you've been buying it. That's uh, Eleven Mustachia Daughters by the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, um, which is shot to the top of the charts this week, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, this week you've been listening to Cat Stevens, Magnus Anderson, Katie Grocott, Eli Sessions was our producer. You can find Freaky Trigger at www.freakytrigger.com. Stay tuned for The Clear Spot from 8 to 9, Mule Skinner Blues from 10 to 11. The website didn't say what happens in between and 50-50 sound system taking Resonance FM to midnight. Tonight's show was sponsored by The Body Part Hair. I'm Mark Sinker. Thank you for listening. Worship for Satan. <laughs> <laughs>